0: We are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege.
1: Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Clasco Immigration Law Partners. Hello, everybody. This is Ron
0: Clasco, and I'm joined today by... Uh, two of the wonderful lawyers in our office, Anu Nair and uh, Andrew Zeltner. Uh, This is part two of our podcast on ways in which legal immigration uh, have been uh, diminished or in some cases entirely eliminated under the Trump administration. Uh, Part one, which was a, a discussion of legal immigration generally and the importance of legal immigration to our country, was published on August 28th. Um, I'll tell you that today is October 7, And the reason that's important is we're talking about events occurring almost daily involving restrictions on legal immigration. If this were recorded a day ago, there are some things we're gonna talk about today that we wouldn't have to talk about. Um, so anything that occurs after October 7, you're not going to hear on, on this podcast. Uh, But I can tell you that there will be more podcasts to come. Uh, The theme of this is really ways in which the Trump administration uh, have gone about attempting to accomplish their goal of reducing legal immigration by at least 50% or more. In some cases, they've been successful in doing it. In other cases, we've been able to rebuff their attempts. And we're going to talk to you both about. Some of the ways that the administration has gone about reducing or eliminating legal immigration and some of what we have done to counter that. Uh, and we're just kind of going to go around. Tell us uh, what uh, an example you want to give us. So so right now, Ron,
2: you know, COVID has been the pretext, right, that has allowed the administration to go even farther. And we're kind of dealing with a three-headed monster right now. Number one being the embassies are just for the most part closed because of COVID, right? Number two, we're dealing with a travel ban from the Schengen region, the UK, Ireland, China, and Brazil. Um, And and of course, we have the H&L visa ban as well. So we have a breakdown in communication, um, a massive increase and RFEs and, and the inability to apply for these visas, um, you know, abroad. And, and Anu, a question I have is, you know, I know the State Department came out with additional guidance on the h visa bans on August 12th. Um, you know, can we make compelling arguments for our clients to get h visas, right? So we, we have the State Department guidance. We recently have a court decision, right, where we've uh, seemingly overturn this H&L ban. Can, can you and Ron talk a little bit about um, the, the State Department guidance and the recent court decision?
1: So there's been limited guidance on what actually um, constitutes a waiver of these bans and how uh, our clients are able to successfully get these H's and L's and J's. And what we have found has worked is if you can show that what you're going to be doing in the. US is somehow connected to COVID, that seems to be the key in getting these H's, L's, and J's approved even um, during this um, period where everything is banned. And it does don't um, you don't have to limit it to just doctors or scientists working on, Um, you know, vaccinations or anything like that. It can be people in the IT field who are really vital now as we do everything remote and everything on the cloud. So you do have to have some sort of nexus to COVID. And that's the only thing that seems to be working right now. But Drew, I know you've had some personal success in getting those, those bands.
2: Right. I've had some success exactly with regards to individuals working for a large pharmaceutical client of ours who have been responsible uh, for ensuring an adequate supply of COVID PPE, for example. Um, But I will say we've also been successful in getting uh, exemptions and expedited appointments for individuals who have not worked in the COVID area very recently as well. So I would certainly say if you have the COVID connection, that is very likely to win the day. But if there's not a COVID tie to the case, it may May also, be worth pursuing, and that's something that we should explore. Um, Ron, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the federal court decision on the HL visas? I think we found one federal judge who came to the conclusion that the president may not be a king.
0: Yeah, good point, too.
2: So, yes, it is
0: very important um, that uh, about two weeks ago, uh, a federal court judge ruled that the presidential proclamation establishing the ban. On H1B and H2B and L1 visas uh, was improper. Um, And what he did is he said that it cannot be enforced against the plaintiffs, which included four different organizations the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Association of Manufacturers, the National Retail Federation, and TechNet. The result of this is that if a person is sponsored by a company that is a member of any of those four organizations, the non-immigrant visa ban is no longer applicable to that person. So if any company is not presently a member of any of those organizations, they can join now. And the result of that will be that their employees are no longer subject to the non-immigrant visa ban. Because as you guys have talked about, uh, there, there's a it's a multi-pronged attack to get into the. US. First of all, you've got to find a console that's open and a lot of them aren't. Uh, a lot of them that are opened have one year delays during the you know since they've been closed in, uh, getting appointments and you have to go through a procedure to get an emergency appointment. In some cases you're dealing with quarantine issues um, for, for the Schengen or UK or Ireland or Brazil or China. Then you guys talked about if you do get the appointment and if you get an exemption from the quarantine issue, then you still have to get uh, you know the visa approved if it's still subject to a ban. um, And we hope in many cases it will no longer be. Separate from that, there is an immigrant visa ban. So we've talked about the non-immigrant visa ban, but the immigrant visa ban prevents the issuance of immigrant visas except for. Uh, certain immediate relatives, including immediate relative spouses and children, uh, and also for EB-5. But every other immigrant category is banned. But there are all sorts of exceptions to these bans that we are advising our clients on. There will be separate litigation, as we speak today on October 7th, there will be separate litigation filed challenging the immigrant visa ban. But that is still in effect as of now, at least until December 31, 2020. Anu, you want to take the next one?
1: Sure. So we've been talking about visa bans and um, you know the the hurdles that the government has thrown, and one of the biggest hurdles that I've seen is where they've pretty much stopped printing green cards and work authorization cards. And this has been extremely vital for our clients who are already in the United States. So let's say you're here on an H-1B and your spouse has applied for a work authorization or you've applied for a green card. And part of that process, you've applied for a work authorization. There is a period of time where the government was unable to print any of these work authorization cards because they had let go the contractors who were responsible for this printing. And it's actually been the subject of of multiple um, news reports where people who are in the U.S. don't have proof of their ability to work. And of course, in this day and age, when there's I-9 verifications that's required, they are losing out on jobs or they they have to stop working until they were able to secure some sort of confirmation that they have work authorization. And that also goes for green card holders. Um, green cards were being produced really late. And usually once a case has been approved, we were seeing green cards being issued within about two weeks, up to 30 days. Now we have cases where their applications for a green card have been approved, and it's 90 days or more, and we're still waiting for a green card for a lot of these people, which means that they have no proof of their green card um, that their lawful permanent resident status, which by regulation, USCIS is required to provide. So they are in violation of regulations themselves and putting green card holders and people who are here. Lawfully and legally, potentially unable to work.
0: As we speak today, there's some indication of progress on that as a result of mandamus federal court lawsuits uh, that have been filed um, and that have resulted in orders that the immigration service has to process these applications and cards in in a reasonable period of time. Um, So on anything relating to delays, and I think delays in and of themselves is a perfect example of ways to, you know, to shut down legal immigration. Um, if if an EB-5 petition used to take uh, a year and a half to adjudicate and now it takes five years to adjudicate, that's somebody who's not coming into the country for a while. So in everything we've seen, we've seen attempts to delay the process. And if something could take two years or three years instead of one year,
2: that's fewer people coming into the U.S. Drew, do you have another one you want to take? Sure, Ron. For our international student friends, it appears that uh, in F status, it appears that the uh, the duration of status um, designation may be going away and, and that our foreign students in the future may be admitted uh, for a defined period, uh, like uh, like folks in other visa categories. I know, Ron, you were successful um, in, in ending the uh, the immigration services initial trap where they literally wanted to entrap students in, uh, in status violations, right? So the rule used to be the case that you would not be accruing unlawful presence until there was an actual finding of the status violation. Uh, the immigration service wanted to change that to have the uh, unlawful presence clock uh, begin once there was any kind of technical violation of status, whether the student was aware of it or not. Thankfully, they they've backed off of that um, draconian position, which would have left our, our Students um, in jeopardy of the three and ten-year bars, and it now looks like we may be heading to uh, a duration of status um, admission, which is at least an improvement over the uh, initial idea of wanting to entrap um, foreign students into the bars. Yeah, Drew, this was a
0: huge issue uh, for universities, hospitals, students, doctors on F and J F and J visas, Um, and you know this is something that I was personally involved as co-counsel. Actually, I was personally involved about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, in negotiating with the Immigration Service to agree for the last 25 years uh, that people with DS do not have a date certain and therefore never accrue unlawful presence for the three and 10 year bar. Um, One day, the Immigration Service decided this would be a good way to get rid of lots and lots and lots of foreign students by saying that you're, you can't come back to the U.S. for 10 years because of something you never knew was wrong, um, the school never knew was wrong, we never told you was wrong, but we've decided it's wrong now. Um, and there are countless examples of technical and unknowing violations. Happily, we filed in federal court and the federal court judge uh, issued a nationwide preliminary injunction and then uh, permanently enjoined the government from enforcing that memo. So the government's response has been now, as you said, to do a proposed regulation to get rid of duration of status uh, and therefore have students and exchange visitors be subject to a definite end date, which would then enable the government to say after, uh, after 180 days, you have, uh, you're subject to a three-year bar if you've uh, violated your status. So this is one where we're going to be fighting out over time. Let me mention um, something that uh, is uh, is going to is actually hasn't even been published yet, but we know it's going to be published. I think this evening, as we speak in the afternoon on October seven, um, and that is two new regulations to with the goal of very significantly diminishing the H-1B program. Uh, one regulation, which will be issued by DHS uh, by uh, Homeland Security, uh, is a regulation that would uh, very significantly limit what is considered to be a specialty occupation that qualifies for h one b and very seriously limit or in some in most cases eliminate the ability of h one bs to be working at third party work sites. Um, this will be a uh, Subject that will be litigated, most certainly. Um, And since they are doing it without what's called notice and comment rulemaking, uh, they have to fit within something called a good cause exception based on emergent circumstances, which we think don't exist. And so we think just as with the the student and exchange visitor case, and just as with the non-immigrant ban case, we think we have a good chance of success in litigating that. The Labor Department wage memo um, would increase the required wages to be paid to H-1Bs by, in some cases, 50 percent or more, Um, which is, you know, for reasons we can maybe discuss on another podcast, is uh, very unrealistic. And again, I am aware that this will also be litigated. The Department of Labor wage rule will be effective immediately. Uh, The DHS H-1B rule will have a 60-day delayed effective date. Both of them are avoiding the normal procedures of notice and comment rulemaking.
1: So I I don't know if that's exactly reducing legal immigration, but it's one of the hurdles that they definitely put up, which is limiting access to um, any sort of information from USCIS officers. And there's two major examples of that The first is, you know, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, which is a huge network of immigration attorneys, used to have a really friendly relationship with the Department of State, CBP, and USCIS. And for the most part, at an individual level, that still exists. But as a whole, it's been really difficult to get any sort of information from these different agencies because this administration doesn't believe in kind of having that free flow of information. So previously, during our, um, you know, local chapter meetings, or even the national um, annual meetings, USCIS officers, top USCIS officers, top CDP officers, DOS officers, used to come in and have a discourse, used to talk to the immigration attorneys about new policies, what they like to see, what they're thinking when they're adjudicating um, petitions. And we've lost access to that. Now, if anyone does show up, they just read um, a script that they've prepared. There's no engagement whatsoever. The other and second most frustrating one is um, scheduling InfoPass appointments. And this is where you could call USCIS and either speak to an officer Um, Well, first you go through a contractor and then eventually uh, have the opportunity to speak to an officer about any delays in getting receipt notices, green cards, or help your client schedule an appointment to go in and get a stamp in their passport to serve as proof of their green card if they've lost their green card or if it's expired. That all used to be done electronically. So you could just go online, complete a form, get scheduled for an appointment now you have to go through this like multi-stage, it's like this intricate dance of you have to call USCIS, they'll determine if it's a good enough reason to schedule you for an appointment or even call you back, and then they give you a 72-hour window within which they'll call you back, and that starts 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and if you happen to be in the restroom or driving or just not near your phone, you restart the whole process again. So. It's complete lack of communication and transparency um, that I think is one of the biggest hallmarks of this administration, and kind of laid the foundation of all of the other hurdles that they've kind of thrown up.
0: Yeah my view on that, Anu, is the, there's in, in the previous decades in which I've practiced immigration law, um, there was some attempt on the part of the Immigration service and other agencies to get it right, as far as what Congress intended, what the law is, there's not much to talk about if they're under instructions to deny more cases. Uh, and we're talking about, well, here's how you can approve more cases. There's really not the basis for a dialogue. And I honestly think that the goal is no longer to get it right, but rather to achieve a goal
2: of denying more cases and reducing legal immigration right and we've really seen that and the numbers don't lie so so the rfe rates in the obama administration for the most used uh, types of visas your h's and l's were you know under 10% and over the last three and a half years, we've skyrocketed in some cases to over sixty percent, for example, you know, for L one B cases. So not only you know has communication broken down, but nuanced review of cases has broken down. And what's requested in these in these RFEs from the Immigration Service is just you know voluminous amounts of, of, of documentation. So you know, as an example, they'll they'll ask for you know resumes. Um, pay stubs, uh, degrees of of supporting individuals who are not the foreign national in the case. And really, what they're trying to do is make the employer's job, you know, as difficult as possible, right? So people just quit and and, and put their hands up and, and just say we can't, we don't want to deal with this anymore because it's become so irrational, right? So I think the breakdown in communication, uh, the increase in RFEs, is all leading t- towards that goal, right, of limiting legal immigration, which they couldn't accomplish and, and get through as legislation through Congress. Um, but what they are, you know, doing very vigorously uh, with the agencies and, and literally now coming out with a parade of horribles seemingly every other day um, that's keeping the you know, federal courts busy. I mean, this is, I think, what the Trump, uh, the Trump administration is really good at. They just throw so much negativity at you that it's hard just for a moment to take a breath and, and take each one because we're being you know, just bombarded every single day uh, with various attacks. Since we're almost out of
0: time, let me just mention very briefly a few other things uh, that uh, that should be included in any list of attempts to restrict or, in many cases, eliminate legal immigration. Uh, The government uh, came up with an idea that we're going to require everybody who comes to the U.S. to have health insurance. Uh, For many reasons, that's uh, either impossible or impractical. Uh, The good news is a federal court enjoined that. The government came up with new rules uh, regarding what's called public charge um, that for a long time were enjoined by the courts. Uh, As we speak now, the DHS rules on public charge are enjoined, but the rules applicable at U.S. consulates are not presently enjoined. Um, The uh, so those are are also very important things that uh that we should add to any any list. So I hope that gives everyone listening an idea of maybe five or six examples and believe me if uh anyone wanted to listen to a 5 hour podcast we would have lots more examples to give you but uh, give you an idea of the fact that the public often thinks that what's going on is restricting illegal immigration, that this is all about restricting people coming illegally to the U.S., um, restricting uh, criminals in the U.S. Everything we're talking about has absolutely nothing to do with that and is really attempts to restrict people coming here for perfectly legal purposes that will benefit U.S. employers and benefit the U.S. economy. So the um, in conclusion, I'd just like to suggest that uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you give us a, a five-star rating and a review. Uh, please feel free to email podcast at with questions you would like answered. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, sign up for our emails and the latest alerts and blogs at classicallaw.com. I'd like to thank Anu Nair and Drew Zeltner, I'm Ron Clasco. Thank you for listening.
1: For more information, visit us at ClascoLaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at ClascoLaw.com. The material contained in this podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney-client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or a review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration-related guidance is needed.